0: This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in August of last year.
1: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We all have an idea in our heads about what French food is, or Italian, or Japanese, or Mexican, but where did those ideas come from? Who decides what makes a national food canon? Recipient of three James Beard Awards, Anya von Bremsen has written definitive cookbooks on Russian, Spanish, and Latin American cuisines as well as her internationally acclaimed memoir, Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking. Now in her book, National Dish, she sets out to investigate the truth behind the eternal cliché, we are what we eat, traveling to six-storied food capitals going high and low, from world-famous chefs and scholars to strangers in bars in search of how cuisine became connected to place and identity. Anya von Bremsen is one of the most accomplished food writers of her generation, winner of three James Beard Awards, and a contributing writer at Afar magazine, author of uh, six acclaimed cookbooks. She's been a contributing editor at Travel and Leisure, Food and Wine, has written for Savur, New Yorker, and uh, Foreign Policy, among other publications. And uh, she's fluent in four languages, We're not on the road, uh, divides her time between New York and Istanbul. And Anya von Bremsen, uh, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me. delighted <clears throat> to be here.
1: Uh, so, New York, and you write uh, uh, you, from the book, uh, your uh, your neighborhood, Jackson Heights in Queens, sounds delightful. Um, Istanbul, you divide your time, uh, part of the time in Istanbul. You must love Istanbul, too.
2: I love both cities, and they're very different. In Istanbul, I have a view of the Bosphorus, which was one of the most beautiful bodies of water. And here in New York, we are literally the most multicultural neighborhood. Uh, in the United States, if not the world, we have a registered of one hundred and sixty eight languages spoken here. So linguists and anthropologists come to study this society here. it's It's really fascinating.
1: you talk a bit about in your introduction about uh, you know growing up at the um of course, you wrote a memoir, right? to up in the ussr and and the food, the food from from everywhere, what you know eleven time zones.
2: Yeah, USSR uh where when I grew up there was an empire which fell apart uh in nineteen ninety. But I'm from Moscow and um it's it's all multiculturalism. Uh it's a very imperial kind of multiculturalism where you know Moscow essentially dictated everything uh to Uzbekistan or to Ukraine, which it now you know has attacked, uh because it wants it as part of its empire still uh, but it was a fascinating experience there was very little food uh, food lines shortages but we dreamt about food all the time we longed for it and i wrote about it in my memoir mastering the art of soviet cooking which was published in 2012 and has been translated into 19 languages uh, because i guess people uh, people relate to that experience in some
1: way. Then you say when you came to the U.S. Um, I want to read this. Uh, I love this. Uh, you say, I still remember my ESL teacher lecturing grandly in a loud nasal Philadelphia accent about how proud we students should feel about being part of a glorious melting pot nation. And then you say you're a little, you're skeptical of the food. Uh, uh, Day orange Velveeta, gloppy chili. <laughs> um, you you're cynical about states and their identities.
2: Yes, well, it was, you know, we dreamt about food so intensely when we were behind the Iron Curtain uh, and America, the United States just represented this mythical land of plenty, plenty for us. As a kid, I thought, you know, oh, there must be chewing gum growing on trees. <laughs> but then we came here and it was an intense culture shock because you had these huge supermarkets and there was so much abundance, but at the same time, nothing, nothing tasted like what we're used to uh so we were for instance we ate a lot of hot dogs in russia but here they were full of nitrates and kind of tasted sour and everything was sweet and you know russian immigrants had no idea what to do and they didn't know how to read the labels sorry we have a lot of honking outside so (laughs) they would they would buy floor wax and they would think it's butter i mean literally and uh, it's just it was just all all this comical incidents but, but it, was, it, it felt intensely alien, you know. You, you just kind of were reminded all the time again of the idea that food represents home. Um, and, you know, I, I've been thinking about this idea, you know, throughout my professional career, how and for what people and for what reasons we associate food uh, with, uh, with uh, something deep in our identity. And this is, in a way, what my latest book is about. It's, uh, it's called National Dish, and it's about uh, looking for the idea of home and looking for the idea of, of who we are uh, from a national perspective.
1: You say that um, you, know, you describe yourself, uh, your partner your mother, as passionate ecumenical culturalists, and so then you ask, why then should someone like me set out to explore national food cultures? That's an interesting question.
2: It is an interesting question. Look, I mean, we're living in the age of uh, intensely hyphenated identities. How do I identify? I'm a Russian-speaking Jew uh, from a former empire that's been deleted from maps, an American national with an apartment in Istanbul, right? Who am I? Uh, And and so many of us, you know, we're, we're transient, we're fluid. We move around, especially now in that age of digital nomadism. But at the same time, as our displacement grows stronger, so does our attachment to the idea of place. And food is a really great, um, phenomenally great, great great, uh, medium through which to examine this paradox. Because we want to tie food to place, right? We want to seek out, you know, the so-called authentic whatever authentic pizza authentic ramen authentic noodles authentic chinese food you know this word is so overused and so with us all the time this idea of authenticity the origin because as we become more and more globalized we need to hold on to something and you know this was one of the reasons why i set out to write national dish is just to examine how these attachments work in the age of such intense globalization.
1: You write that uh, we do have a compulsion to tie food to place, right? But um, this can be myth, myth-building myth sometimes, right? This, uh, this uh, food along with flag and anthem are tied to nation, but nation itself is a fairly recent invention.
2: Exactly, and this was one of the great surprises in the book uh obviously i knew about it as i started but it just hits home all the time That think about it the idea of a nation is really something that belongs to the 19th century because the political orders before that were different we had huge empires that controlled uh other ethnicities and other so-called countries we had absolutist kingdoms monarchies uh we had religious identifications, uh, but the idea of a nation really started more or less in France uh, with the 1789 revolution, you know, the idea of uh, a country governed in the name of equal citizens uh, with the common laws, with the common language. Uh, and at the time of the French revolution, less than 25% of French people spoke standard French. It was all just a hodgepodge Uh, of different principalities uh, and uh, different people who identified. Italy didn't exist until 1860s, the unification. Italy was also a patchwork of principalities, duchies, papal states. In Italy, in 1860, less than 10% of the population speaks standard Italian. Uh, So the idea that we have of a nation as something primordial, something that was always there based on language. It's it's, it's really a myth. So how do you begin to define a national cuisine and national identity uh, in a place that is so fragmented? So you have these unifying processes all over Europe, all over the world. The empires are collapsing. Um, And some of the empires exist until the 1990s, like the empire where I was born. The Soviet Union so from the ashes of the empire from these fragments new nations are emerging and once you have a new nation you need national attributes right like national anthem a flag and you need a national cuisine a dish that unifies a nation and how these dishes came to define countries uh, that they come from is the subject of my book national dish and it's okay. a fascinating journey
1: yeah, it is a fascinating journey. Um, so you start in Paris. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not an expert about it, but, but I could guess, well, if you're going to talk about national cuisine, you, you might start in France. But but maybe talk a little bit about that. Why why start there?
2: Well, Because, as I just said, uh, France is, first of all, where the whole idea of a nation emerges with particular clarity uh, as we move into the 18th and 19th centuries, right? So, france unifies itself it has a set of common laws it imposes the french language uh and it has a very haughty sort of idea of what it is culturally right you know france is the best country for culture it's the best country for food i mean they really believe this french chefs in the 19th century are exporting french cuisine all over the world. You know, think about it. It's a country where the word gastronomy was invented, where the whole idea of a professional chef was invented, and where the restaurants first flourished and were first invented uh, starting in the 1760s. And it's a fascinating story. Restaurant means restaurant in, in, in French, means to restore. And the institution is named for restorative broths for bouillons, for like this helpful liquids that you drank to restore your health. And so they were kind of, you know, the first French restaurants were kind of urban spas where wealthy people went uh, and they had beautiful surroundings, they had murals, uh, they had waiters. And for the first time in history, people could sit at their own table and order from a menu with prices and they could go at any time of the day And ladies were welcome, which was new. Because before that, you had this double dot arrangement where you basically all showed out at the same time and you kind of paid for uh, a set menu and you just kind of helped yourself to a buffet. Uh, So you couldn't, you didn't really have much choice. So this was absolutely revolutionary. And after the revolution, after the French revolution, these institutions called restaurants begin to flourish. So by... uh, uh, 1820. Uh, there are over 2,000 restaurants in Paris, and they're more like what we know today. You know, fancy dishes, fancy sauces, um, beautiful surroundings, beautifully dressed people. But so imagine, Fr- France is really the cradle of contemporary cuisine. It's uh, a nation with, that the first had the cookbook with a national title in it. Uh, like cuisine if says so there's so much in france that that it is kind of fundamental to our dining and eating culture today especially professional eating culture but i look at it and what's happening the french have become globalized uh i'm trying to look for this dish called pot à feu which is essentially a french boiled dinner which is considered the french national dish and people are telling me, oh, and here's a great place to find, you know, a bau burger. And here's like this hipster mescal bar, and you're going to feel just like you're in Brooklyn. So it's very funny. So I'm, I'm saying in this intensely globalized city, what happens to the idea of a national cuisine?
3: Uh, in
1: fact, um, you end up, um, you, you know, you you make your uh, pot feu right, your pot on fire um, but you improvise yeah, with some Vietnamese, uh, of, I guess, uh, food.
2: Yeah, exactly. Because pho, uh and you know, even the names are similar. The, the, the Vietnamese national soup uh, is a colonial is a colonial invention uh, uh, because it was European who encouraged beef production. And I'm staying in Paris in this very multicultural neighborhood which is kind of like my New York neighborhood. So in the, in my apartment swap, in the kitchen, I find this cube uh, of instant fur, instant Vietnamese soup. So I drop some into my French pot of feu And uh, you have, you know, the 20th century hybrid, hybrid dish, which really kind of so much exemplifies the way we eat today.
1: One of these aspects of globalization, uh, I guess interaction between... Our idea of a place right which is connected to food and the reality of the place you write that there's something called Paris syndrome. Tell me about that.
2: Something which with syndrome
1: uh, Paris Paris syndrome.
2: Oh the Paris the Paris syndrome it's something that the Japanese tourists suffer from and it has a Japanese name it's like Paris Shokobun or something and they come to France expecting everything you know the perfect dream vision of, you know, a romantic city and beautiful couples in Chanel outfits uh, going, you know, on cobblestone lanes, you know, to this beautiful French uh, bistro, you know, like everything that you see in a movie, you know, like this Emily in Paris kind of vision. And then they come and Paris, you know, is a big, dirty, noisy, uh, globalized city, you know, with trash on the streets and fights in the metro, in the subway. And... They become intensely uh, uh they develop this disorder you know they, they you know it's accompanied by fainting extreme anxiety extreme disappointment at like your uh the reality and not meeting the expectations but for me it was the opposite i've always kind of had difficult uh difficult time in paris because i found it so overbearing uh and about this culture about this gastronomy it was like always in your face we are the best uh but on this visit and staying in this multicultural neighborhood and kind of finding that Parisians were letting go giving up on this idea uh that they're the best I found it extremely liberating
1: you talked about uh, globalization. I want to, uh, I'm want i going to quote you uh, from the book, the is Anya von Bremsen from National Dish, her new book. Um, with the rise and domination of globalization, nations and nationalism somehow seem both more obsolete and more vital and relevant than ever. That's a paradox. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that.
2: Well, think about it. You know, we live in the... In the age of digital commerce, we can buy anything from anywhere in the world. Uh, everything is so fluid. Uh, the world is so incredibly interconnected. You know, the, the globalized economy. You know, the neoliberal economies. Uh, everything, everything is about commerce, and everything is connected. And we travel through space. Uh, we are so multicultural. Like, I live in a multicultural neighborhood. Half half of the. So many cities in the States, you know, have all these different people. So we eat sushi anywhere in the world. Uh, I've had burgers in Samarkand in Uzbekistan. And I had sushi, some of the best sushi in Peru. And it's like that. At the same time, uh, almost as a protective mechanism, uh, we really kind of uh, hold on to the idea of our roots, of who we are. And our attachment to the particular nation. And look, look at for instance, the pandemic brought out this paradox, right? So on the other, on the one hand, you had unprecedented global cooperation in developing vaccines. Uh, you had global digital commerce because people couldn't shop, uh, so they bought stuff from all over the world. At the same time, you had this vaccine nationalism. The borders closed. Um, so here you have it. It's it's almost. Uh, two sides of the same coin you know the global and the local as i argue they nourish each other they need each other so one side of, our, of us is global the other one clings on to our identities to our nations and to the sense of who we are which is really important uh you know, morally and in other sense and i'm no fan of nationalism of political nationalism and this is something else that we've seen recently. We have this populist, uh nationalists like Putin, who, you know, in the name of the nation has attacked another country. We had Bolsonaro in Brazil. We have a certain person here. Um, so it's it can be used as an ugly political tool. Uh, but it also has benevolent sides. Everything everything in life is complicated, right?
1: Yeah. Oh yes. Everything in life is complicated. <laughs> um, uh, before we go to a break, we'll have a brief break and then come back with more. I want to have you talk a little bit about authenticity. This is you—you you write about this that this idea of authentic can, you know, can be bound up in in this idea of cultural ownership, which can be bound up in the national identity. It, it can also be commodified, right? You can you can sell this idea of authenticity.
2: Oh, absolutely! At one point, in the book uh, in Naples. I reflect that oh authenticity is such a monster marketing tool. And this is in relation to the story of a pizza, uh, pizza Margarita, which is the most famous pizza in Naples and is very well known here. And it's named after an Italian queen uh, from the northern house of Savoy, who supposedly came to Naples, well, who did come to Naples and supposedly ordered uh, a pizza you know, a 19th-century takeout, and it was delivered to her by a famous pizzaiolo of the time, Raffaele Esposito, and she allowed it to be named after her. So here we have this myth and legend of Pizza Margherita, and it's repeated everywhere, even in dissertations, in scholarly work. But the problem is that that story is a total myth. It's a total fabrication, and it was made up by a certain pizzeria in Naples in the 1930s. Uh, but people believe it. People believe this queen story. So I reflect, oh my God, authenticity, you know, it's it's all about marketing and branding and saying we're the first, we're the authentic. Um, everything you eat and everything you buy is commodified these days, right? And uh, the idea of authenticity is a very powerful one. Uh, Right. So we want to go and eat something that is the original, unadulterated. But the thing is, everything, everything is fusion right now. Everything is hybrid. Cultures are so interchanging and so interconnected. So what is really authentic? And, you know, the problem with that notion that we tend to essentialize people. We go to a faraway place, we go and we want to see, you know, old people go to some hole in the wall where all the people are eating uh, Burek or mofongo or whatever. Um, But what if the same people want to go to McDonald's and eat sushi or, you know, something else? Is that not an authentic expression of their desires? Um, So I believe we have to be open-minded and let other people be other people and uh, not always fall for this marketing uh, of, The original, the authentic item, no matter how attractive it is.
1: We're talking with Anya von Bremsen. Uh, She is a three time winner of the James Beard Award, a writer of uh, several uh, best selling books. And the latest book out just now is called National Dish. We're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back uh, with more conversation with Anya von Bremsen on Access Utah. Thanks for listening to Access u Tom Williams, we have with us uh, acclaimed uh, writer uh, Ani von Bremsen, recipient of three James Beard Awards, uh, writer of uh, several uh, best-selling uh, books, uh, the acclaimed uh, uh, memoir, Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, and uh, other books, uh, now out with a new book called National uh, Dish. And um, the, the idea here uh, was that she was... Uh, uh, going to write about national food cultures told through their symbolic dishes and meals which she would cook eat and investigate in different parts of the world uh, interesting book and uh, we're we're pleased to have her for the hour um, so Anya von on you you um, you went to various places uh, paris naples tokyo seville oaxaca istanbul uh, how did you choose those particular places
2: well, again, I wanted to look at this idea of food and national identity, which is a very broad subject. So I thought to myself, how do you narrow the subject and how do you focus it on food? And I thought, well, what a great uh, idea would be to look at some of the dishes that we know and we love and we're familiar with in places that I also know very well. I didn't want to venture out uh, and talk about things that uh, that I don't know. So. It starts in Paris, as as we noted, because Paris is so important to the whole idea of nationalism and national cuisine. Then I wanted to investigate pizza and not just pizza, but also pasta al pomodoro, pasta in tomato sauce. And for that, you go to Naples because this is where both the dishes were invented. And again, I mean, how more iconic can you get, right? Pizza is something we eat all the time, pasta with tomato sauce. So quintessential from there. I moved to Tokyo and in Tokyo, I'm looking at ramen, the noodles, uh, which are a, a Japanese national dish, absolutely. But there actually happens to be a Chinese invention and it didn't become fully Japanese until well into the 20th century. But along with rice, I mean, along with the noodles, I'm also looking at Gohan, which is white rice that's considered completely symbolic and essential uh, to every Japanese meal. So I look at what happens at the bear, uh, because one is a modern Chinese influenced um, contribution and the other one is considered the cornerstone of a traditional Japanese diet. Uh, From there, I moved to Seville, to Spain. And in Spain, uh, I'm looking at tapas, the small dishes, Uh, that are so essential to the way that Spanish eat and live, you know, going from bar to bar, uh, having small glasses of wine with small dishes. And it's really, uh, tapas have become so popular over the last 20 years. Now we talk about Chinese tapas and Mexican tapas and uh, everything is a tapa, right? Because nobody wants to sit down to a full meal anymore, that French meal, you know, of appetizer soup main course dessert like we just want to be free so tapas are very important obviously from Spain I go to Mexico to Oaxaca and Oaxaca is Mexico's most multicultural state Uh, it has 16 different uh, indigenous groups all speaking their own languages and Oaxaca is often called the land of several moles and the mole is as complicated Mexicans do in the complex sauce that represents the fusion of Mexican identity. They call it mestizaje, uh, the fusion of uh, European and indigenous cultures and roots. From there, I moved to Istanbul, which is where I have a home, and I looked at meze. And meze are the small dishes of the Middle East, kind of like tapas. And uh, in Istanbul, there are kind of a holdover from the time when the country was part the capital of Ottoman Empire is really fascinating. And I conclude in New York with the Ukrainian beet soup uh, against the backdrop of this horrible war.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it is fascinating. I want to have you uh, maybe uh, expand a little bit on um, your stay in Oaxaca, uh, the, the, uh, the mole. And um, th- this is... This is It's interesting and complicated, right? It's a blend of, uh, as you write, ind- indigenous agriculture, culinary knowledge, and colonial conquest.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, so much of South America uh, has that identity. And uh, what's really—I'm I'm looking at mole because it has— so many indigenous ingredients, like chocolate, for instance, which we forget, right, comes from Mexico, and chilies, of course, uh, and tortillas to thicken it, corn tortillas. But I also look at the tortilla itself, at the maize tortilla. And uh, so, if one dish, mole, represents this fusion, uh, and the idea of Mexico's identity that actually changes and evolves, because that that fusion was very white leaning. You know, the ideal Mexican person would you know was uh, a white-ish Spanish speaker, and the indigenous people were sort of relegated to the margins. And you know, the idea was to acculturate them to become you know proper mestizos. Uh, but you know that that means that meant sort of. Spanish-leaning, now these ideas are evolved. You know, there's much more respect and much more space given to indigenous cultures and indigenous foods. Um, So that's, you know, you have a dish that sort of represents the idea of how Mexicans imagine themselves. At the same time, the corn tortilla, the maize tortilla is purely an indigenous thing. And there was always, uh, after the conquest, there is always this push to sort of eliminate maize from the diet and to get the indigenous people to eat bread. So by the middle middle of the 20th century, uh, half of Mexico is eating bread. It's it's as popular as maize and it's, it has much more prestige because it's, right, it's associated with colonial power. Um, but at the same time, the maize, you know, the way that the tortilla is made, uh, with li- with the corn uh, masa treated with lime slack it's been like this you know since since the pre-conquest you know for centuries and how this art of tortilla survived all the negative onslaught uh, that was brought by the colonists it's it's kind of incredible
1: what's the uh, what's your favorite thing that you ate during research for this book
2: I have to say I really really love pizza And the way they make it in Naples, in a special domed Neapolitan oven, uh, just the dough itself is so delicious. And, you know, you bake it on the floor of the oven and it's it's done in 90 seconds flat. Uh, And it just has this lovely burnt bits and really good mozzarella and really delicious tomatoes. I mean, honestly, I can eat pizza every day. And it's small. The Neapolitan pizza is the size of a dinner plate. It's about nine inches. And uh, you eat it, you can eat it on the street. It's called al portafolio, like folded like a handkerchief. You sort of you know uh, you fold it uh, in a in I have to show you <laughs> it's hard <for> the, <laughs> it's hard to describe, but you know, you kind of eat it starting at the point where all the sauces are. so it's 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 amazing I, I really but corn tortilla is a, is a close second. I mean, a beautiful tortilla from heirloom corn uh that's freshly made handmade you know with no additives no, none of the horrible you know instant masa um it's, it's it's something it's something it's a thing of beauty and the way that Mexicans eat it is is something called taquito de sal like a salt taco you kind of you sprinkle it with salt a, a freshly made tortilla you sprinkle it with salt you roll it up really tight And this is a breakfast. And it's just, it's it's so, there's something so like primal and beautiful about it.
1: Um, Is there, you know, now the book's done and you've uh, done this research. And uh, of course you travel around the world anyway. Um, Does that change what you cook at home? Do you you add any of these dishes into the regular routine?
2: Well, some of the dishes you can't really cook at home, like pizza. Mm. Uh, I mean, I tried, but, you know, it's never going to be. Uh, as good as it is at a pizzeria, because we just don't have the right ovens, uh, or ramen—you know, it's something that usually buy you usually eat it at the restaurant. But I do eat a lot of you know high quality instant ramen, uh, which I really adore, uh, and I do I do buy my tortillas from a special place here in Jackson Heights um, that 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 are real tortillas. Um, so yeah, uh, absolutely. And meze, you know the Turkish meze. I mean, I've eaten them uh, before this book, but now I have a special appreciation. And but I'm always experimenting because besides narrative nonfiction, I've written six cookbooks, so I have a pretty large repertoire of dishes in my mind. And you know, I love I love to cook and entertain. And it just made it made me realize how important it is to who we are to our lives to come together as people and to share food uh, and to share our feelings. And especially having been deprived of it in the pandemic, which, uh, which was just so heartbreaking for me. Uh, I mean, we were apart, you know, my partner and my mom. Uh, so we got together and we ate together. But, you know, you really miss your friends and your extended family. And, you know, I really miss the big meals.
1: That is important as a big part of it, yeah. I was just thinking, I was, I was comparing and contrasting in my mind uh, what I'm imagining your food life is there in Jackson Heights with uh, all those cultures, all of that uh, food, um, you know, available. And uh seems, uh, where I'm here in Utah, you know, a little more monochromatic, a little <laughs> fewer... Uh, if Fewer access to fewer of of these uh, cultures and foods, but I guess you anywhere you are, you can you can if you look, you can find these.
2: Oh, absolutely! I think I think Utah has uh, has very good Asian food scene. No.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely, yeah. and uh, and and some great uh, foods from Central and South America. You know, where, yeah. where we are in, in in Logan, so I guess that's maybe more personal. I should I should seek it out, right? Let's uh, do a little little work and seek it out.
2: I think it's always an emergent it's always an immersion into another culture, at least the way I see it. You know, this is why I chose food uh for national dish to look at these larger issues of uh identity and nationalism. Because just, food is just in such an amazing prism through which to look at the world and uh every time you you ingest something from another culture, you know, part of you part of you is trans transported there. At least that's how I feel.
1: Uh, part of this, of course, is how we we don't have to travel someplace to have an idea, um, you know, about uh, say Italian Italian cuisine is pizza, right? That's a kind of a stereotype. Uh, more than more than uh, you know, often that's wrong. So, what is that? Um, the, are are those damaging to have those just kind of stereotypes, uh, you know, sitting here in the U.S.
2: I think any stereotype is da- is is damaging because it's so reductive. It reduces in a culture to a dish or an image, uh, and uh, often these stereotypes are pejorative. You know, of you know, the French people eat frogs, kind of thing. Uh, so we have to be careful about this. At the same time, um, paradoxically, it's the countries themselves that often promote these stereotypes, right? Uh, I mean, pizza is a huge global industry. Uh, I think it's like $20 billion industry. Uh, And uh, Italy really wants to make sure that it owns it. So there's all these protective organizations like in Naples, you know, it's called the Verace Pizza Napolitana, the true Neapolitan pizza that reminds you that pizza has to be like this and like that, and that kind of topping and baked in a certain way. so it's hard to escape you know it, they're hard to escape those stereotypes as long as we look beyond them and we show cultural sensitivity and curiosity about the world um so uh, this is this is something really important and this is something that uh, i wanted to show in national dish how crucial it is uh, to look at food not just as something we eat oh yeah let's have a slice of pizza italian pizza or Pad Thai from Thailand, but to to see what's behind these dishes and behind these stereotypes.
1: Well, let's take another brief break uh, when we come back. Uh, we'll be talking more with Anya von Bremsen about her new book, National Dish. And I want to talk uh, in the last segment uh, uh, about the last chapter about Borscht. Um, and uh, so timely, so timely um, with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with acclaimed uh, food writer Anya Von Bremsen. Uh, her new book out now is called National Dish. Um, Anya Von Bremsen, uh, we have about oh, uh, eight or nine minutes left. I definitely want to uh, talk about your final chapter. This is very moving and um, it gets into a lot of the things we have been talking about, uh, but, but in a very heightened way, I would say um so you you talk about uh borscht by the way you it's borscht and not borscht is what you're saying
2: yeah i mean bor- borscht The us is a yiddish is a jewish spelling somehow that got adopted but ukrainians are against it so they're asking the world to drop the tea uh because that's how russia uses it anyway uh i was uh so i go to these six countries i look into these different national dishes and through them how identities uh constructed and perceived and uh for my original epilogue i had an idea to have a thanksgiving which is like the most symbolic american meal uh in my very multicultural neighborhood of jackson heights and just to see how all these different ethnicities and peoples internalize thanksgiving this american holiday so but just as i was contemplating this chapter uh, the war breaks out Putin launches his full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And we say full-scale invasion because the war has actually been going on since uh, 2014 in eastern Ukraine. Um, and um, so suddenly everything changes for me. I'm from, I was born in the USSR. I'm from Moscow. I'm a Russian speaker. Uh, it makes me question, who am I? And I'm looking at Borsh, which is a traditional beet soup that both Russians and Ukrainians claim as their own. And in fact, it was a pan Soviet dish. Everyone in the former empire ate it. It was just so common. Um, it's just like you know, macaroni and cheese or something, right? You know, you haven't you didn't think about it as having a nationality or ethnicity. It was just a common Soviet dish. But uh, even before this full-scale invasion. Russia and Ukraine are arguing about who it belongs to because Russia is guarding Ukraine and teasing and saying, "Oh well, you know, borscht is such a such a Russian national dish," and you know the minister of culture is tweeting it, and the Ukrainians get extremely upset and you know they counter argue that is in fact historically a Ukrainian dish, which is correct, and you know on the eve of uh, of. As the invasion be- begins, I have a full, you know big pot of borscht made by my mom, who is from Odessa, uh, a city in Ukraine, but who grew up and lived her her life in Moscow, a Russian city. So I have my mom's borscht in my fridge, and I'm suddenly thinking, whose dish is it? You know, it's something, you know, the whole question of cultural ownership that I've been f- reflecting on for so long uh, for my book journey, I feel like it's landed on my table on my own dinner table with this incredible visceral personal intensity and it really is making me reconsider who am i you know i don't want to be russian i don't want to be speaking the language of putin's aggression i feel embarrassed for having collected works of tolstoy and chekhov on my uh shelf you know so i'm thinking am i guilty of some kind of uh imperialism uh how do i decolonize this dish which i always thought as our dish our family dish our russian dish how do i decolonize it uh from myself and inside myself and how does one make it truly ukrainian um, and in the meantime there's a whole kind of borscht solidarity movement happening on the internet you know this there's, there's various activists uh especially there's women in London, Olia Hercules and Alisa Dimoshkina, uh, they're starting cook for Ukraine hashtags and people are making borscht as solidarity, in in solidarity with Ukraine. So it's a very powerful movement and my mom is involved in it because she's teaching uh, cooking classes on Zoom in this great school called the League of Kitchens the League of Kitchens, and they're raising money for Ukraine through her borscht uh, lessons. So it's all very moving, but at the same time, very confusing. And I feel like I'm losing a part of my identity and my relationship to the food of my childhood. And that's fine. This is a process You know, I feel that I have to go through. Uh, to just kind of decolonize myself and to understand ukraine better so it's it's a very turbulent and very sad chapter and it ends with me inviting our ukrainian friends over for dinner uh, because when the war started many of our ukrainian friends stopped speaking to russians uh and uh, you know posting very angry things on social media about russians and uh, somehow i feel like i'm russian and somehow i'm guilty so i'm inviting this friends and we're having borscht together and we're talking about the war and we're talking about our changed identities and how we'll never be the same again um and i wonder if russians and ukrainians will eat ever eat borscht together again and of course, the Ukrainians think like no way, not not for generations. So this whole idea that food brings us together is very benign and it's it's an inviting thought, but it's not it's not always the case. Food can always also divide us. So I end the book on this ambiguous, uh, sad note, but it's it reflects the situation that's happening in the world and uh, my feelings about it.
1: We just have about a minute uh, left. What do you hope uh, readers take from from this book, National Dish?
2: That food is a fascinating subject. It's full of complexity. It's full of paradoxes. uh, But it's this incredible window onto cultures. And when we eat pizza or ramen or tapas or corn tortilla, there's so much history there. uh, So much about identity. So about so much about nation formations, uh, and so much about deeper culture. And I hope people uh, pause to reflect on all these issues when they eat the dishes that they think that are familiar to them. And that was the idea behind National Dish.
1: Well, fascinating book. It's out and available now. It's called National Dish. The author is Anya von Bremsen. Uh, an accomplished food writer, a three-time winner of the James Beard Award, uh, best-selling books, um, including the memoir, Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking. Latest book is National Dish. Anya von Bremsen, thank you so much. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll go out, as we do on Tuesdays, with Utah StoryCorps.
3: It's time again for Utah StoryCorps, everyday people sharing their stories at the StoryCorps recording booth in Logan. I am Iria Lisa Higginbotham, mother of Thomas.
0: Well, Mom, we're living in a world that's really full of conflict. And you were born into conflict in Finland kind of soon after the the Winter War.
3: I uh, remember air raids I remember airplanes dropping down pamphlets. Then I remember the soldiers coming back from the front. One of them was a bicycle troop. Up till I was about 14 or 15, I was afraid the sound of airplanes and the news. Those were scary times.
0: How did the conflict affect your direct family?
3: <sighs> My uncle was missing in action. My parents. Lived in Karelia, southeastern Finland, and uh, they had to leave their home very quickly when the Russians were coming in. Father, he was uh, working for the railroads. He ran from the trains and told my mother, you have 20 minutes. I think this train is going to get through. So she grabbed some things for the baby, and uh, for a couple of weeks, my dad didn't know where mother had ended up, and mother didn't know where dad was. But uh, they ended up in a little town of Yoensu, And we lived in a small one-bedroom apartment. There were six of us children, and uh, three children could sleep on beds. If you were there early, you got the bed. If not, (laughs) you slept on the floor. But um, I didn't ever think that uh, I was uh, missing anything. You know, it was just, that was life. We were okay. You couldn't fight because there was no space, <laughs> and and uh, we didn't fight over things. We had no toys. We were close, and, uh, and we still are. So 1963, I was accepted to the University of Utah, and so I left. I told my parents, I don't know if I'm going to come back, and it was hard for me. I came to Salt Lake City and met. My husband, I had seen him in Finland, but if somebody had told me that I was going to marry him, I says, "Oh, you must be crazy." Anyway, it was a good thing. He was uh, very honest and great integrity, and very smart. That was one of the things that endeared me to him.
0: So, tell us about some of the experiences in your kind of your early married years.
3: I was teacher for two years as fifth grade. At that age, they started getting interested in boys and girls. And I even got a love letter from one of the boys in the class.
0: (laughs) Did you feel like a foreigner?
3: Not really. Uh, I didn't teach my children Finnish, and they kind of uh, didn't like that. They wanted to. But uh, I was thinking at that time, only four million people spoke Finnish. So,
0: But you and dad had your own secret language when we were growing up. Oh,
3: yes. (laughs) (laughs) When we didn't want the children to know what we were talking about, we uh, spoke Finnish to each other. Mom, this has been awesome. I have a son and a daughter-in-law right there who take good care of me.
0: We love everything about you and everything that you've accomplished. And thanks so much for sitting down and talking today.
3: Thank you.
2: And this is Utah StoryCorps. Tune in next week for more Logan stories, same
3: time, same place. Support for Logan StoryCorps comes from Cache County and from USU Credit Union, a division of Golden West.